We're going to take a look at Psalm 66, and uh, there's so much here. We'll be out around three. Kidding. <laughs> yes, everybody's like, no, no. Um, I want to just check, and, and, and for many of you, I know this may be your first time church experience, but some of you might have come from other church backgrounds. Just curious, any Methodists or Presbyterians in the room? All right, see a few. How about Episcopalians? Okay, we're going to do something that, depending on your perspective, may be fun. If not, just bear with. But it's, it, it's nostalgia time. So as, as they were doing in vacation Bible school, when they went back in time, they went... Remember that from Bill and Ted's? Actually, not there. It was Wayne's World, yes. At any rate, we're going to do responsive readings, except we're not going to do them like they did them in my church. We would do it this way. The, the, the leader would go, praise the Lord. And the congregation would go, praise all the earth, his people. <laughs> So we're going to do the opposite and have some fun. So back on the screen, there will be leader, that's me, and then there will be all, which is y'all. And we're just going to take the roof on and break a few windows. So let's try it. Got that first slide up there? Here we go. Shout joyful praises to God, all the earth. And y'all say? Sing about the glory of His name. Tell the world how glorious He is. Sing about how awesome Your enemies cringe before your mighty power. They will sing your praises. All right. Y'all are not like the church I grew up in. This is cool. Hey, um, I'd like you to take your bulletin and go to the notes section. And if you have a pencil, um, great. If you don't, use your fingernail. Kidding. Um, But I want you to write something down. And um, before you write it, let me just kind of give you a, a preface here. I want you to think of a hard time when, when things were really rough where you were wondering where God was. And, and it felt so bad you were wondering, okay, God, where are you? If you're there, how come you're not delivering on the goods? Could use some rescue right about now? And all that kind of stuff. I think everybody's kind of walked through that. And I want you to think about how did that feel? And how did you respond to that situation and if you want to, just jot a little something down. Now, why am I having you write something down? Because when we write often, it stays more in our memory. It makes it more real. And we're going to take a look at that towards the back end of our message today. Now, if you're embarrassed about you don't want anybody next to you to see what you're writing, then just write like a number or draw a symbol or something that will help you kind of focus in on that. Nobody will know what it is. So, but I want you to just do that for a second. I'll give you 15 seconds. Here we go. I'll stand here and stare at the clock while you're doing that. I know. 10, 9, 8 kidding. At any rate, this psalm is about people who have been in deep trouble, a particular writer who's gone through a very, very tough time, and um, he's just come out of it. And a lot of people speculate that it might have been King Hezekiah. Now, why would it have been good old King Hezekiah? Well, Hezekiah one time had one of those situations where the Assyrians had come and they had completely invaded um, Judah and they were now surrounding the capital city and pretty well the opera is over. You know, all that we need is the lady to sing and we're done, right? And, and that's kind of where it was. They were in the final act, the final aria, closing it on up. And, and the Assyrians were thinking, ah, easy pickings, we'll just take out the capital city, then it's ours. And in fact, it got so bad that um, the commander of the army was taunting the Israelites in the capital city in as many languages as he could think of. Our God's better than your God. In fact, your God told us that he wants us to defeat you. So how's that? And all this horrible stuff. Well, the people were freaking out. So the king and the priests and all the people decided to fast. 
Fast is when you basically create some space to hear God's word, and often that's involving not eating or not doing other things so that space is created so you can listen better. And God said, I'm going to take care of you. And sure enough, he did. For some mysterious reasons, the army withdrew. And later the king that had invaded God's people was also assassinated. Now, the guy who replaced him wasn't much better, but at least they got some breathing room. And so Hezekiah then basically with the whole nation was rejoicing. Now, again, we're not sure if that's the setting, but it sounds like a good setting. But at the bottom line is we know somebody just got out of a really nasty scrape, and so they wrote this psalm um, in, in, in Thanksgiving. So let's begin. We'll walk through, first of all, verses 1 through 8. Shout joyful praises to God. I'll just reread this a little bit. All the earth, sing about the glory of His name. Tell the world how glorious He is. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Your enemies cringe before your mighty power. Everything on earth will worship you. They will sing your praises, shouting your name in glorious songs. Now, interesting, many psalms begin with praise. And this one talks about all of creation praising, not just humanity, but all of creation praising God. And you notice how it says, all the earth praise God. Now, here's the problem. When you look around, all the earth ain't praising God. I mean, not only do you have broken people, but you've got a broken earth. You know, you've got earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, depending upon what part of the country you live in, you have to worry about one of those things. You know, and never mind the forest fires that are by natural causes. And, you know, then the stuff we create, like global warming, and you pick it, it's a mess. So how can you say all the earth praise God? Simply this. In the Bible, when you look at the call to praise, especially in the Psalms, it's literally an act of defiance against the brokenness and the evil of this world. It's a way of saying, this will not be the last word because one day all of creation will praise God. One day everyone will bend the knee and bow to Christ who is Lord of all, creator of all, and life of all. It's kind of like this. If we were to unpack it, let all of creation praise God. That's kind of a Psalm 19 kind of praise where the stars sing to the glory of God where all of life and its diversity reflects the wonders of the Creator, even in the way they exist. And very specifically for human beings, we praise God not just with our lips, but with our actions. The best way we can praise God is by living a life that reflects God's character to each other. Think about that. The best way that we can praise God is by living a life that reflects God's character to each other. And again, there's a huge gap between what God calls us to and where things really are. So when we praise God, we're saying, this way it is shall not last. This brokenness, the way we see people treating each other badly, this way that the earth is so fractured, one day it will change. And it will change big time. And this praise looks forward to that big change. But even more so, this is kind of cool. When we praise God, not only do we look forward to when God is going to make all things right, but in a mysterious way, the future comes forward to us. And during that time we praise together, we get to experience in a very unique way what God's going to do for the whole world. Think about that. When we worship together, like we've done this morning, we experience a foretaste of what God is going to do when he changes everything. This is why Pastor Mike talked about this morning about leaning into worship with your whole being, just as the kids have done in Vacation Bible School. And, 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 and they've been doing, as you've been holding Vacation Bible School all the way through the summer, is you watch the kids, they just kind of go nuts and they don't care what anybody thinks. Because I think in a lot of ways, they've just been caught by God's love. And God desires that for us when we praise him well, as well. Because then we're acting basically as rebels against the status quo. As rebels against the brokenness of this world. Whether we've created it or whether creation is falling apart. We get to say, this shall not stand. This shall not last. 
Something better is coming down that tracks, and it will arrive at the station, and no one can stop it. Now, if we continue, we take a look. The psalmist is all excited about having the whole world praise God. Is it just some sort of abstract reason, you know, like God is really good? Think of that, you know, that Monty Python scene. I really love it. You know, they've got the Anglican priest all dressed up in his finery, kind of looking up like this, going, Oh, God, you are so awesome. And we down here are really quite impressed, you know. That's not at all what's going on. It isn't about looking up into the heavens to finding God. The writer of the psalm is calling all of creation to praise God because God has shown up in the middle of creation. And he's gotten his hands dirty. And that's why it says, say to God, how awesome are your what? Your deeds. God has obviously done something. You see, we don't worship a God who's far away. We don't worship a God who's off up in his heavens, out there, over there, away from here. We worship a God who's way near, way close, because Jesus himself said the kingdom of God is right here. And we may not perceive God's presence, and we may not always feel where he is and wonder, in fact, where he is, but he has promised he is near and he will act. And that's why we can say, how awesome are your deeds? So, what's God done? What's God done to deserve so much praise? Well, as we walk through, we're going to see three specific, very concrete, historical ways that God deserves to be praised. It's not just this abstract religious junk. It's God's done this thing. So we say, praise God. Let's start with Psalm 66, verse 5 through 7. Come and see what our God has done. Let me read a little bit for you, verses 5 through 7. Come and see what our God has done, what awesome miracles He performs for people. He made a dry path through the Red Sea, and His people went across on foot. There we rejoiced in Him, for by His great power He rules forever. He watches every movement of the nations. Let no rebel rise in defiance. Now, this is where the writer starts with this first story, and it's a story when it looks like everything's going to fall apart. God had given promises to this big old clan, starting with Abraham and Sarah, and now we're at, at Jacob, and, and, and then we go to Joseph and, and his 12 brothers, and they wind up in Egypt, and God uses Egypt to deliver them because there was this huge famine that was going on and a drought and a whole lot of nastiness going on just weather-wise. They're brought to Egypt where they're fed and God takes care of them. But now 400 years later, this clan has grown up to a very large group of folks. You might call them an ethnic group now. And the new pharaoh in Egypt don't like them. In fact, he decides he's going to engage in a new domestic policy and the term we use is now ethnic cleansing. The less pretty term is genocide and he's going to have two ways to do it. Number one, He's going to work them to death. He enslaves this whole group of people called the Hebrews. And he's going to work them to death. They'll all die of exhaustion and starvation and heart attacks and everything else you get from overwork. But in the process, he'll get a few pyramids out of the deal. Well, if that weren't enough, he's also going to kill off all the little baby boys. A little more direct mass murder. And here you have the Hebrews. And they're a very small group of people, even though they're big enough to bug Pharaoh. And then you have the incredible might of the largest empire on earth, and he wants to squash them. And it looks like everything's over. And they cry out to God, and he raises up Moses, and he delivers them. And here we hear the stories of the miracles. Moses says, let my people go. And Pharaoh, being the mega jerk, says, no way. So God intervenes ten times to say, you don't know who you're dealing with. Finally, Pharaoh gets the point and says, please leave. In fact, it says the whole empire tried to bribe Israel to leave as fast as possible by giving half the treasury. So they walk out pretty wealthy. And as they're leaving, this ragtag band of nobodies that's hated by the empire 
Pharaoh changes his mind and comes at them, comes at them with his mighty army. And again, once again, it looks like it's all going to be slaughtered and they're going to be dead and there will be corpses all over the desert. And instead, God miraculously divides the Red Sea and it literally says that they walk through on foot. Now, this is very important. It says, we walked through on foot. What does that mean? Just as we said, they were poor. They had no weapons. They had no resources. They were a ragtag bunch of people, completely defenseless. And God is leading them, and he's their only resource. And Pharaoh, he ain't too bright, and he decides he's going to follow them right through the Red Sea. And just when Pharaoh's mighty army gets in the middle of it, God says, we're going to close this thing up and finish this story. And whammo, water over Pharaoh and his army, and the entire military might of the Egyptian empire is wiped out like that. And who's left? The defenseless people whose resource is God. And in the middle of this, God takes a tragedy near certain genocide and forms a nation. Think of that. God takes Israel, and where there was no future, he creates future. Where there was no hope, he creates hope. Now contrast this to all the deities of the surrounding nations and their gods are up there in heaven off there over there somewhere and really don't have much to do with their worshipers and worship for those surrounding nations is how to get, how to get their gods to finally do something and they never do. Worship for, for God's people is celebrating what God has already done. And so the first act of celebration come, let all creation praise God for what he's done because he has created us where there was no hope. And we are literally the people of hope because we would not be if he were not there. And so he praised him for that. Now we're going to shift a little bit and take a look at the next situation. We have seen in this first passage how God rescues us from situations of no hope. Now we're going to see something a little bit more mysterious, how God rescues us through passages of no hope particularly the negative and difficult situations that we create ourselves. And this is really important. A lot of times I hear in my office, is there any future for me? I've so screwed up my life that I think it's over. If that's where you're at right now, this next section is for you. It starts with Psalm 66, verses 8 through 12. He has preserved our lives. Let the whole world bless our God and loudly sing his praises. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from stumbling. The psalmist proclaims, God has saved us. God has redeemed us. He has preserved our lives from something horrible. But in this case, how has he done this? He has done this by keeping our feet from stumbling. Or to put it more bluntly, keeping us from killing ourselves, from keeping us from destroying ourselves, keeping us from sabotaging our lives, keeping us from from literally imploding and taking others with us. God loves us so much that sometimes he even saves us from ourselves. And that's what's going on here. Now, this is an incredible story when God saves us through difficult situations rather than from them. All kinds of philosophers and theologians have tried really hard to explain this one and they come up with usually really wacky explanations that either make God a monster or make us just worms that are so screwed up God couldn't possibly love us. You know, the Bible doesn't have any explanations. It just has stories. Now, just think about that for a second. People are always trying to explain life. And instead, the Bible simply tells stories of what God does. And then what it does with those stories is it says, and God will do it again. Maybe not when you expect or how you expect or want, but he's going to do it again because he's done it. God has a track record, and so we can trust him. And so here comes this next one. And this is where it gets very, very mysterious. 
You might title this whole section, You Have Refined Us Like Silver. Let me read verse 10. You have tested us, O God. You have refined us like silver. You have captured us in your net and laid the burden of slavery on our backs. You let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and flood, but you brought us to a place of great abundance. Okay, that gets like weird Psalm of the Month award. I mean, that, praise God. You let people ride over our heads with their tanks. Praise God. Huh? What's going on here? Why would we praise God for things like this? Well, here's what the psalmist is doing. He's helping people see that even in the most horrible situations, God is still there doing something. He's still working it. God is not the author of evil. He is not the author of revenge, as we shall see. But God is there, and that's far much more hope than it just being a situation that's random, has no meaning, no point, and everybody just goes down. Well, what happens when God gets involved? Well, we heard this. You have tested us, and then you have refined us like silver. What's all that about? And this is real key. We've got to do a little bit of vocabulary here. When God tests in the Bible, it is not a pass-fail kind of thing. He does not hand out, you know, the heaven standardized test with the number two pencils. It says, fill this out, stay in the little blanks, and you have ten minutes to go. By the way, if you fail, you go to hell. Bummer. You know, it's not that. You know, you hear people say, well, God's just testing my faith to see if I'm really faithful. Well, what happens if you fail? That's not God's testing. God's testing is more like, like when you go to the doctor for a checkup. God's testing is he's checking out how things are and what needs to be done to make you the kind of person he dreams you to be. You know, it's like when you go to a doctor. You know, you've got a symptom, something hurts, and then he, you know, he does some tests, right? You know, and then she checks some stuff out, makes sure, and then, you know, the doctor figures out, well, if there's something wrong, what the course of action is. Maybe it's pills or exercise, change your diet, maybe surgery, who knows what it is. But the whole point is to make you better. Now, here's the problem. Most people don't like to go to the doctor, right? And, and if you happen to be of the male persuasion, you really don't like to go to the doctor. Let me give you an example from this particular male. Um, about four months ago, uh, my left foot just started getting a little sore. I'd wake up in the morning and it was like, ooh, I cramped it. And then it would work itself out. I'd be all fine, you know, by 10 minutes later. Well, a week later, it was 20 minutes later it took to work itself out. Then, you know, an hour, then a couple hours. And then finally by month number two, I'm putting up with this, um, I'm walking into church kind of limping. And it takes the whole morning to work it out. By month number three, it's just hurting all the time. And I'm thinking, oh, it'll be better. Well, finally it gets really bad. I'm going, I need to go to the doctor. No, I can't go to the doctor. It, it, it really hurts. What if I find out something bad's there? I kid you not. That's what was my thinking. I can't go to the doctor because what if the diagnosis is terrible? Don't want to know it. And they thought it was only a river in Egypt. Sorry. Denial is, you know. Well, finally, I just can't stand it. And I make an appointment. I'm terrified what they're going to find. I'm sure I'm going to die from it or at least have my leg amputated up to my hip. You know. Okay, I go there. I'm just really, you know, my stomach's in a knot, and I, I'm there, and the doc takes one look at it, kind of checks everything else. Oh, yeah, plantar fasciitis. Here's what you do. Stop going barefoot on your floor, right? Is that right? He goes, well, yes, that's what I've been doing. Stop that. Oh, okay. And then also, um, here's a couple exercises, and, and wear running shoes most of the time. Goes away in two weeks. Okay, I waited how long? Four months to be told what to do, and it goes away in two weeks. That's just disgusting. But that's often spiritually what we do as well. We know something's the matter, and we think it's little until it gets so big it overwhelms us, and then we're scared to death to find out what it is because we think it'll kill us. 
Never mind that God actually can put us back together. He wants us to come to him so he can take a look-see and tell us what to do. Now, what's his response when he tests us? His response, then, is to, is to prescribe a course of action that in the Bible is called refining or purifying. Well, what does this mean? Well, it's not God's revenge, and it's not some kind of punishment or some way for him to show us who's boss. It's actually the way he puts us back together. Well, let me unpack refining for a second. And this is really key because there's a whole lot of goofy teaching about the way God builds us into his image, the way God molds us and shapes us so that when people look at us, they see God's character and we literally become living proclamations of God's glory and embody the praise that the psalm calls us to embody. And these two words are God's wrath and God's healing. Okay, now we got the bad word, wrath. Oh, yes, here we go. God, hairy thunderer, lightning, wham. Actually not. If you go to the Apostle Paul, if you go into the New Testament, the Apostle Paul explains God's wrath really well. It says that people rebelled against God, and so he gave them over to their own desires, and they received the logical consequences for their actions. You see, the word wrath in the Bible is simply a poetic way for talking about what happens when you go against the way God made the world. I'll give you a couple examples. Imagine today you go climbing up to 801 grand because you want to fly. You've decided you are power positive thinking. I'm going to fly. And so you jump off that thing. Nice swan dive. Whammo! You become roadkill down there on grand. What happened? It does no good to be complaining to God because gravity happened. And in this case, God's wrath is spelled G-R-A-V-I-T-Y. It's built into creation. Don't try flying off the Empire State Building and don't complain to God when you get the logical consequences. Little more at home, God designed marriages to be a place of trust and safety. When you break that trust and you break that safety, don't be shocked and don't complain to God if suddenly your spouse stops trusting you and the relationship is broken. It's built into how we work. It's built into how we work. That's God's wrath, and we do it all the time. We run into it all the time. When we pull power plays at work, we alienate our co-workers. When we oppress our employees, we lose their loyalty. When we shut down in a marriage, there's distance in the relationship, and on and on and on and on. That's what the Bible calls wrath of God. It's built right into the creation. But the cool thing is it's not his last word. God never, ever, ever wanted that to be the experience of us. And so, right on the heels of God's wrath is God's healing. And this is when God actively steps in and intervenes and starts putting us back together. It's when he begins to literally pull us out of that hole that we've been thrown in or the one that we threw ourselves in. And he doesn't even glow. He looks over and then says, Oh, you're in a deep hole here. Want my hand? Come on. And that's his response. That's his response when we run against creation. When we, when we start messing things up. Now, this whole wrath healing process is not all nice and tidy. It's not like first comes the wrath, then comes the healing, and I can see where the wrath starts and stops, and then I can see where the healing starts and stops. No, it's all mixed up together where you can't tell one from another often because that's just the way life is. In fact, often you cannot tell where God has been putting you back together until hindsight. Often it's after you come out of it, you can say, that's where God was at work. Wow, what a powerful and amazing God. But often in the middle, as Martin Luther once said, you can't tell the difference between God and the devil. Sometimes it just gets that confusing. And that's okay. You're not losing your faith and you're not losing your mind. 
it can just get that mysterious. Because remember, God not only rescues us from situations, but sometimes his healing power is in the way he rescues us through situations. Think back to Israel's own story. Because this is how God has worked. We know historically that Israel dug a big and honking nasty hole. And here's what it said. You captured us in your net. You laid the burden of slavery on our backs. And then you let people ride over your heads. And we went through fire and flood. Literally, that is the story of Israel's history. They would get corrupt inside and the rich would oppress the poor and the families would break up and government would become violent and, and, and it would weaken their whole structure and, and, and any nation could come and invade them. And what God would do is he would use those invasions not as a way to hurt his children, but as a way to call them back to him. And each time they cried out, God rescued them. And so that's where the psalmist says, all this happened, but you brought us to a place of great abundance. God mysteriously used their own self-made tragedies as the pathway to life. Now think about that. If you've made a royal mess of your life, God can take what appears to be a pathway to death where there's just none left for you. You've ruined your family, you've ruined your career, and you don't know what's ahead. And God says, you know, I have this way of taking precisely that way what looks like it's going to go nowhere and I open up dead ends and I make them freeways to life and that's why the psalmist mysteriously says all this misery God creatively turned into a path of great abundance whatever you have done in your life is not the last word whatever's been done to you in your life is not the last word God is the last word and he will take that in his own mysterious way and make it a path of great abundance And so the psalmist then says in verse 13, Now I come into your temple with burnt offerings to fulfill the vows that I have made. Yes, the sacred vows I have made when I was in deep trouble. And that is why I am sacrificing burnt offerings to you, the best of my rams as a pleasing aroma, the best of bulls and male goats. And at this point, everybody goes, Ah, read fast, that's weird. Actually, there's a very cool thing going on here. I talked about the pagan deities and the surrounding nations and how basically worship for the other nations was to kind of bribe their gods to do something maybe. Well, the same with sacrifices. They would sacrifice all kinds of things, including their own children, to bribe their gods to do something. It was exactly the reverse. When there was a sacrifice made in Israel at the temple in Jerusalem, it was literally a place where they experienced God's presence and said thank you for what God had already done. It was kind of like a big old wedding celebration. Let me talk about exactly what happened to sacrifice most of the time at the Temple of Israel. Is Let's say something had happened and, and you wanted to either reconnect with God or you wanted to praise God in the case of this psalm. So you'd bring your best you know, livestock, and you'd call all your friends and relatives, and, and you'd all make this big old trip up to Jerusalem, and you'd invite the priests, and they would cut up one of the animals, and they would sacrifice just a portion of it on the altar, and they'd take the rest, and they'd have themselves a big old Texas-style barbecue. I know, Texas Israelis, what are you going to do with them? Um, and they would literally party. And during this party... They would just say, God, you are so amazing what you have done for us as a nation, but also for me personally, how can I thank you? How can I thank you? It's kind of like a a, a couple when they have their 50th wedding anniversary. And I don't know if you've ever been privileged to see a couple at their 50th anniversary who has had a good and healthy marriage. And you glance at the two of them, they're in their 80s. And well, he's looking at her like, wow, you're hot. You know, and she's going, what a hunk. And all you can think in your head is, are you too blind? You know, but they're not looking 
Just with their physical eyes, they're looking with the eyesight of all that incredible history, and they're just as gaga as they were when they were 18. And it's because of the way that they have grown together, and all they can say to each other is, how can I thank you? How can I thank you? If I can give you 50 more years, I will. I will never, ever let you go. And that's what the psalmist is saying. How can I thank you? How can I thank you for what you have done? Well, what is the psalmist so thankful for? Remember we talked about Thanksgiving for how God formed Israel in a place of despair and then how God has continued to save Israel not only from their horrible situations but even through them. And now we get to the third situation and this is where he says, I will tell you what he did for me. And he gets up and close and personal. Let me just read starting at at verse 16. Come and listen, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he did for me. For I cried out to him for help, praising him as I spoke. If I did not confess the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God did listen. He paid attention to my prayer. Praise God who did not ignore my prayer or withdraw his failing love from me. Now, one brief thing before we launch in, because this is important to cover. It says, if I had not confessed the sin of my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Now, a lot of people have misinterpreted that that God won't act until you kind of get it all out on the table and let him kind of rub your nose in it. In fact, I'll refer to Martin Luther one more time. He had this problem. Because he thought he had to go ferret out every sin that his conscience had committed and his subconscious had committed and he'd committed on purpose and by accident. And the guy was a wreck and he was in this monastery driving all his fellow monks crazy. Until finally his spiritual director, who was kind of his mentor and coach, sat him down and said, Marty, get a life. He says, that's not the point. The point is simply to be open and honest before God and to trust Him with anything and everything that's on your heart and not shut down and hold back and hide. And this makes sense in everyday relationships. Let's go back to marriage. If for some reason you begin to shut down emotionally and not talk about what's on your heart, you destroy the relationship. But again, that gaga 50-year-old couple knows the secret to a good relationship is keeping it open and being honest and saying the wonderful stuff and saying the tough stuff. And what God is simply calling us to is a healthy relationship with Him. And we know this, when you shut yourself down to someone else and put on that emotional bulletproof vest, not only can't they tell what's in, but you also block yourself from experiencing them. And that's what happens. When we shut down with God, then it feels as if He's not answering. Then it feels as if He's walked away because He can be right near hollering, Here I am! But we can't see it because we've blocked ourselves from Him. And so that's the psalmist who said, had I just thrown a big old pity party, had I just walked off and said, ah, the heck with you, God, I would not have known what he wanted to do in my life because I would have shut myself down and not been available to experience it. And for me, this hits home because that's kind of my first impulse when tough stuff happens is I kind of throw a party, a pity party, I pout, get all mad, and then I wonder, why me? And then I go look at how I can take care of myself to solve it. Usually a good friend has to kick me in the behind and say, Dude, uh, you know there's only one way out of this one. Go talk to the dude who can make it happen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. To me, this is huge for us. And so the psalmist had learned through the faithfulness of God to keep himself open to God, even in the tough times. Even in the tough times. And what happened? God paid attention to his prayers. Did not ignore them. Did not withdraw his unfailing love. 
And we don't know exactly what happened, whether the psalmist had had a tough time, maybe it was King Hezekiah, or maybe it was just somebody who had dug themselves a big old deep hole. But whatever it was, it must have been something really nasty. Here's the bottom line, though. God listened. And more than that, God did something. Just like when he led his people out of Egypt. God did something. Just like he had done time and time again in Israel's history. God did something. And now he's up to doing something again. And now the psalmist wants everybody to celebrate the fact. Not just everybody. The whole world. All of creation. To celebrate the fact that we worship a God who does not stand there on the sidelines. We worship a God who instead wades into the messiness. Gets his hands dirty. And puts life back together. That's the kind of nation. That's the kind of God we worship. And God wants to do that not just for Israel, but for the whole world. And for ordinary people just like you and me. You see, we may worship a God who makes good on His promises. And not just from Psalm 66, the whole Bible shows a God who makes good on His promises because He's proved it over and over again and most powerfully in Jesus who came and He lived a life among us. And He reflected God's love like never, ever before. And then showed us what it meant to be a real human being and invite us to join him in this new amazing kind of life. And even when we rejected it, wrote him off, killed him off, God did not respond in revenge. But with that infinite creative love he has, where nothing stops him from loving us, with that infinite creative love that gives him the ability to take something even like the death of his own son and turn it around, he turns it into the healing of the world. Think of that. Even God's own death, he turned into the healing of the world. And get this, folks, one day he's coming back. And all the mess you see around yourself, all the junk, all the destruction, all the holes you've dug yourself into, God is going to come and he's going to deal with He's going to raise us up and he's going to restore us to what he had in mind all along. He's going to call evil to account and banish it forever. And he's going to establish justice and restore the entire creation. And then he's going to invite us to partner with him in taking care of this, care of this wonderful cosmos this fully restored new creation where heaven and earth come together and there's no end in sight of the adventure he'll have for us. And that will be worth praising God about. Let me close for a second. If you wonder when God's going to come, I want you to know he will. He has done it and he'll do it again. If you want to be part of that, just let him know. Say, God, I've always thought religion was something where I had to do something to keep you happy. Now, he wants to give you life. And he wants to give you life overflowing. And just ask him for it and he'll give it to you and invite you on the greatest adventure you've ever had in your life.